0: Good evening again, beloved. thankful to be back with you again. Thankful that you're here and uh, we can be praying for our brethren who can't be here. Uh, I know the last time we had our study, as I mentioned, uh, some who couldn't be here were really blessed the next day to have it as it related to affliction and, and relating to why they couldn't be here and can't be again tonight. So pray this will be an encouragement to them as well to us. We're studying the Lord's Prayer, the sixth petition. Uh, the second part of the petition, as you know, and Deliver Us From Evil with Thomas Watson, his book, The Lord's Prayer. Uh, Where we left off, we had a study last time on affliction. So he began to help us recognize the evil of sin. Uh, Again, we're first studying the evil of sin, deliver us from the evil of sin. Later, we'll also touch on deliver us from the evil one, Satan, who would tempt us to sin. But we're looking at how evil sin is, that we'd be more motivated and sincere in asking, please deliver me from evil. And what he started to do is say, one of the ways to better appreciate how much you want to be delivered from sin, the evil of sin, is to contrast it, to compare it and contrast it to other things we want to be delivered from, more naturally perhaps, and then recognize sin is worse than that. So we should even more want to be delivered from sin. And affliction is what we studied. There was a a large section about affliction. And the good of affliction, and how the Lord uses affliction, and not that we should never ask to be delivered from affliction, but if we had to pray, uh, rather than deliver us from affliction, deliver us first from evil. Deliver us from sinning. That would be the more important thing to pray. God uses affliction. He allows affliction. And we saw in Psalm 119... The latter 60s verses and the early seventy verses talks about how good it is to be afflicted in terms of how the Lord uses it and brings us closer to him. Uh, we, we stopped uh, because we were getting into the next section, affliction magnifies a person. So we decided to pick it up there tonight. Uh, it's a rather short section actually and then we're going to look at some other things. What I'd like to try to do is move through, I'm going to try not to speak too quickly, but I'm going to try to move through, I am going to try to get to a section I want to end tonight, because it will be a nice bookend. It brings up affliction again at the end. But the whole study isn't just on affliction tonight. But like I say, we'll open and hopefully close on that topic. And uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll pray uh, something that's brought up in our text. We often sing, excuse me, we'll sing uh, the second part of Psalm 19, Lord willing, okay? So, Thomas Watson on the Lord's Prayer, the sixth petition we're looking at, again, the second part now, and deliver us from evil. So, he says to us, affliction magnifies a person. So, again, this stemming off of our larger study on affliction last week. Let's look at how horrible affliction can be. We naturally want to be relieved of it, but we have to recognize sin is so worse, so we should much more be asking, deliver me from evil than we would of affliction. It's not saying don't ask to be relieved of affliction, but recognize you should want that even more related to evil. Okay? If we recognize it's worse, it's worse. Yet it also can magnify a person. And I think we've touched on this a little bit. But how is that so? He, he always pastorally kind of anticipates the, say what? <laughs> you know? So he says, how do afflictions magnify us? They magnify a person. How? And he says this, first of all, as they are signs of sonship. When you are afflicted, it is a sign of sonship. And he brings us to what we're very familiar with, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. God deals with you as sons. As the Lord allows you to go through difficulties, chastenings, things that will develop you but are difficult, you recognize that's a sign that you're a son of God. He's in the context, and he's referring to Proverbs 3, of course. uh, Hebrews 12, he's saying, you know, we have our human fathers. And because they love and care for us, they chastise us and discipline us. How much more our heavenly fathers? So it's a sign we have a father, and we're not spiritual bastards. But we have a father in heaven. So, again, it shows that you're a son. And so, when you think about what does the Lord's Prayer, how are we taught to open our prayers? Our our Father. And I think we can be motivated in our affliction to think to remember to start the prayer. Oh Father, our Father, oh Father, recognizing this affliction is from you and you are good and care for me. Thank you for the reminder that I am your son in this affliction. Um, Keep in mind that Jesus talks about you are sons of the devil if you're living his ways and speaking lies like him. So thank you that I'm not a son of the devil, but I'm son of God through Jesus Christ, the son of God. Um, we're told in James 5, I'd actually like to go to James 5. I'll mostly just... Yeah? What? Who's here? Oh, was here tonight. He stopped by the men's study last night. Wow, praise the Lord, that is a surprise. Is he trying to get in the store or... I'll well, tell you what, maybe you can go welcome him and invite him in. Thanks, buddy. But can you go around the back, though, please? We tried it. Yeah, thanks. Oh, that's great. Let's pray for Samuel right now, okay? Lord, we thank you that you brought Samuel back tonight. It definitely surprises me. As he was here for food last evening... Uh, and didn't seem too interested in, in in worship as far as I could tell. Yet he's here. We prayed for him, and according to John 6, that he wouldn't be after the food only, as you say, Jesus, but that he wouldn't depart when he hears your words. We pray you bring him in, and Lord, that you might convert him and add him to your church. We, and, and increase our faith, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, James chapter 5, turn with me. Please. I'm I'm mostly going to just quote these scriptures for you because he he largely does quote them in the book. But I'd like to look at this one together right after Hebrews, right? Hebrews, James, chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job... And have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So we're encouraged to be thinking about Job. And Thomas Watson does bring Job up a lot, uh, including in this study. I'll only be referring... Offering, relaying a few of these things, but let us look to the patience of Job. Remember, these are signs of sonship. When the Lord allows us to be afflicted, if it's turning us to Him and crying out to Him, that's a sign we are His sons. And consider the patience of Job. When he went through affliction, I think none of us would dare boast we could relate to. Uh, He kept coming to God, and we're encouraged to keep going to God as Job did in his affliction. Okay, so the next thing he says is to be thinking about how a man is magnified. Uh, Welcome, Samuel. Good to see you again. Good to have you. Um, He says, a man by suffering affliction may bring honor to religion. Paul's iron chain made the gospel wear a gold chain. Now think about when we studied through the letter to the Philippians we finished early this year. He's rejoicing in his chains, right? He's literally rejoicing in his bonds and he's saying God is using this to get the gospel out in Rome. Uh, Even the afflictions of other pastors who are taking advantage of my being afflicted seeming to want to kind of be the main guy now, or something, I guess uh, that's good, too, because the gospel's getting preached, you know, so he rejoices in his in his chains, and remember, he's probably chained to a Roman soldier twenty four seven Imagine how that would be sleep, you know. I mean, if I can't sleep on, I have to move a lot, you know, and if I had to stay on the same side, if I had to be chained all night, the rattling, just think about all those things. Imagine going, trying to go to the bathroom, and I mean, in not modern times, I I was thinking recently about, what did they even have, these big cities? How did they, how did they, how did they pull this off, you know? (laughs) Just imagine what he went through, but he's rejoicing in it. He uh, brought honor to religion in his chains. And even Job, doesn't he say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, Right? Uh, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him in the end, right? So we, we give honor to religion and I, I think that's something we always want to consider is the Lord is giving me a witness that I won't curse him. That I'll still praise him in this. What does Job's wife tell him to do? Curse God and die. No, I will choose to live and suffer and praise him in it. And it doesn't mean that he or we do that perfectly, but that heart and that desire, uh, the Lord gives a witness. And wasn't it a witness? Who was it a witness to primarily, by the way? Satan. Satan said, oh yeah, well, Job's praising you. He's got it good, but let's see what happens. He's not going to praise you when you let me hurt him bad and hear him bad. But he did. And so it's a witness even to Satan. Jesus, Jesus is Lord and we have victory in him. So Paul's iron chain made the gospel wear a golden chain. So we can think about, uh, one second please. Me, uh, we can think of, uh, again, Philippians, but also 2 Corinthians 12. We've gone there in previous studies, so I think for time I'll move past it. But he talks about, Lord, if there's any way to remove this um, thorn, asked him three times. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So his response is, okay, great, pour it on. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, but if it, if it glorifies you, then give me infirmities and give me difficulties. If my suffering and struggling and serving you glorifies you and shows your strength, then let it be. You know? uh, so our suffering, and, and I would remind you, there's a sermon uh, we preached earlier this year. Uh, there's a purpose in your suffering. So if you might need that as an encouragement, go to our sermon audio page and look that up again. God has a purpose in your suffering. And to remember there is a purpose in it really helps, right? Because sometimes we feel like, what's the point of this? It doesn't. We ask that question, why? And remember the whole book of Job, that question's being asked, and God never answers that question. It's ultimately for his glory, for his purposes. Um, but keep that, keep that in view, that it, it's giving glory uh, to him course remember also Paul says in Philippians I want to fellowship with Jesus I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and there's only a certain kind of fellowship and a certain kind of intimacy we can know with Jesus in our sufferings you know I was praying for Olivia she's doing so good now. You know, I have hardly hear her. Thankfully, I pocket dialed her by mistake yesterday. She called me back, and she's doing great. She's loving her studies and just doing great. But, uh, you know, when Rachel and I left, she was struggling with our leaving, and I was praying. I don't think I mentioned to you, Rachel, but I was praying, Lord, use this to bring her closer to you. Like, let this be a time where she learns, even in a new way, that only these kinds of things do. To to know you better in this, that you're there, and she can experience you in a in a new way. The Lord will bring us in fellowship with sufferings in His sufferings, and that all is uh, gives a glory. So again, uh, it's a sign of your sonship. That's how the afflictions magnify you, and in your suffering, it honors the true Christian religion. It honors Christ, it exalts Christ. And so in magnifying him, you know, I can't but think of the recent verse for the wedding we had, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Isn't that not also a call to say, let us suffer together through life as a married couple? Because over time you're going to suffer together sickness and in health, right? Uh, but we can glorify God in it together. Uh, he says, next, when a man's afflictions are upon a good account when he suffers for Christ, he has the prayers of God's people. Be thinking and encouraged about it. I, I think, I don't know if it was this study, but I know it's Thomas Watson Uh One thing that encourages him, when he'd go into a new town or a new place, he'd be encouraged to remember people are praying for him, even though they don't know him, or that he's necessarily there. Because we're praying for the church uh, militant, we're praying for the church throughout the world, and so he gets those prayers too, you know. But especially when our brethren know us, and they know we're suffering, and they know we have afflictions, it's a great encouragement to know that you're being prayed for. Just that you're thought of, right? Because sometimes in our afflictions and suffering, we can feel so lonely. And to know that we're being prayed for regularly. And uh, one thing I want to remember for us to be praying for. uh, I have been, but uh, the way we approach prayer tonight, I forgot to put it on the list. Please be praying for Jeff Stuyvesant and Tabitha Lott. She's going through real difficulties, as you know, with cancer, and she needs wisdom to decide whether she's going to continue the chemo or not. She's stage four kidney failure already. She has major diabetes. She's got so many things going on, and um, she's struggling a lot. So please be praying for her, and we'll close in prayer for her, too. Um, And yet... Knowing that they're we're praying, and what brings that to mind also is they have the the Caring Bridge website where you can be getting updates and be praying and, and giving notes, and those are those are so encouraging. And uh, people are praying for you when you're struggling. People are probably praying for you more when you're afflicted, right? We we tend to not. I mean, probably this isn't necessarily a good thing, but we don't tend to pray for others as much unless we know they really need prayer for something difficult, right? We should be praying for wisdom and hedge of protection and all those things, the sixth petition for our brethren. But when we're going through suffering, you could stop and say, well, I'm getting extra prayer than I normally get right now, most likely. Wow. You know, just as we say afflictions cause us to pray to God more ourselves, others' afflictions cause us to pray more for them. And he gives us Acts 12 verse 5 as an example. Peter was in prison but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And of course, he was freed, right? And he comes to the door and, is it Rhoda, I think? Is it, who's the lady that greets the door? and you know, like, It's kind of like, hey, let me in. <laughs> she can't, can't hardly believe it. There's a great song by one of the gospel singers I have in my mind right now. It's a, uh, the prayers are often answered, but those prayers are happening particularly when we're in need of them. Uh, he writes this, but in contrast to that, so again, we're contrasting it with sin. That's how afflictions actually used for good for us. In contrast, even though it's really hard, and you want to get out of it, sin is not like that. It's so much worse. Again, see how you don't want to be, you want to be praying to be delivered from sin more than an affliction. You might say, well, if I'm delivered from affliction too soon, I won't have as many prayers. I won't have as much prayer support. You could look at it that way. Uh, But when a man sins presumptuously and scandalously, he has the saint's bitter tears and just censors. He is a burden to all that know him. Now, it isn't that we wouldn't still be praying for them But it's kind of like Hebrews when it says, don't be, you know, submit to your elders that it would be a joy to them and not a grief to them, which is better for you also, right? And uh, so the prayers would be more of crying out in pain over someone rather than praying for strength for for them in their pain. He gives us um, Psalm 31 verse 11. They that did see me without fled from me. So there's an aspect of a distancing and a lack of fellowship even with our brethren in sin. But affliction brings us together not only in supporting one another but in our prayers. Affliction makes our prayer support of one another. uh, You know, and we're there in the spirit as Paul says, right? Though not in the flesh. Next thing he says, affliction can hurt a man only while he is living. But sin hurts him when he is dead. he's, he's going to get to another point about that that I alluded to, or I not alluded to, but I gave you the, hence what's coming up. Affliction can hurt a man while he's living. Once you're dead, no more affliction for a Christian, right? It has often been said, whatever whatever difficulty you're going uh, in this life is the only hell you'll ever know, right? But those who are struggling, having horrible things going on in this life, but they're not Christians, it's only the beginning, It's nothing compared to what you'll know forever in in eternal hell. Sin hurts him when he's dead. Because the wages of sin is death. Right? And eternal death are those wages for a person who's not trusted in Christ for eternal life. He writes this, When a spider is killed, the poison of it may hurt. So the poison of an evil example may do much hurt when a man is in his grave. So not only does sin keep hurting you in hell, but the sin you leave behind like a dead spider, the poison can still affect others, right? Um, Thus, he says, sin is far worse than affliction. That's what he's really wanted driving at. Yeah, you want to be relieved from affliction? Consider how hard affliction is and consider sin is way worse. So be be praying, deliver me from evil, the evil of sin. He goes on to say this, secondly, so there was that long section as we're going to compare sin, the evil of sin, with other things that we more deeply appreciate how horrible it is and how much we want to be rescued and delivered from doing it, let alone being delivered from having done it. Secondly, that long comparison with affliction, now sin is worse than death. Sin is worse than death. Now he's already kind of touched on that a little bit. He has more to say. He said, Job calls it the king of terrors. The king of terrors. Sin is the king of terrors. It's worse than death. Uh, Job calls it the king of terrors. Sin is more deadly than death itself. Job uh, 18.14 Death, though painful, would not hurt but for sin. It is sin that embitters it and makes it sting. The sting of death is sin. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin. I remember Bruce Raglan years ago asked me, it seems interesting, wouldn't it be the sting of sin is death? But the sting of death is sin. And uh, I answered that for him when I was preaching on this text a while ago. We'd both have to go back to refresh on what my answer was. But just notice that, the sting of death is sin. There's this aspect of a sting, an ongoing effect of a sting, right? You know, you get stung by a bee or something, and there's that ongoing, oh, oh, oh." well, death has this ongoing effect with a sting of sin. You know, it's the cause of death, but it's also the the reminder of why you're there, and you haven't been freed from sin, right? You've been allowed to stay in sin if you're in hell. This is, of course, having in view an unredeemed person, Uh, Death, he writes, death does but take away our life. But sin takes away our God from us. So that it is worse than death. What is the effect of sin in the garden? You are no longer allowed to be in my presence. And that's death. Jesus says to know the Father and him who he sent is eternal life. Right? To not have God is the worst thing, and that's because of sin. Even after you're dead, that's still your horrible experience. And even in hell, you have uh, the presence of God's judgments and wrath in hell forever, but never his comfortable presence of fellowship. And that's worse than death. That never ends in death. That effect of sin continues to sting forever. Thirdly, he writes, so sin is worse than affliction. Sin is worse than death. Sin, he says, thirdly, is worse than hell. Sin is worse than hell. In hell, he says, torments there is something that is good, there is the execution of God's justice. But sin is the most unjust thing. So one good thing about hell is that it is the execution of justice. And sometimes we forget that. But when someone has done a horrible thing and justice has been rendered, there's a sense of that is good and right. There's a sense of relief and resolve, right? So the fact that there is justice in hell is good as it glorifies God's justice. But sin itself, there's nothing. It's just an unjust thing, right? like we're warned in our men's study yesterday, not to have unjust anger. Something that's unjust, it's not right. So he says, look upon sin in the manner of its cure. If this is the case, let's find out how we can be cured from it, right? He says, God must die and be made a curse for us before sin could be remitted. uh, uh, Remitted, excuse me. How horrid is sin that no angel or archangel nor all the powers of heaven could procure its pardon but the blood of God only. And when he's speaking of God, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, right? The second person of the Trinity in the flesh. Sin is so evil and horrible that only the blood of Jesus Christ incarnate could could deal with it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, that hymn, right? Nothing can take away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It was so horrible. Eternal God needed to take on our humanity and pay for its eternal price for us. Elder Renner was talking about how he donated blood recently for another in church and how they... Actually, this the way they did it, they had to take it out, have it come back into him, take it out. He had to squeeze the ball and he was watching it as they're taking platelets. And he was thinking about the blood of Christ and how it cleanses us. The blood of Christ cleanses us. But if sin can only be remedied by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, consider how evil is sin. Holy, holy God had to pay for it, had to die for it. How horrible is sin. How horrible is sin. Uh, then he says, look upon sin in its dismal effects. And it will appear the most horrid and prodigious evil. The wages of sin is death. That is the second death. Romans 6.23. The second death, which Revelation speaks about. Revelation 21.8. The second death. We're all dying the first death bodily because of Adam and Eve's sin. Right, but the second death is hell forever. Soul in hell forever. The wages of sin is death. That second death. Consider how evil it is. This ongoing second death. There's no chance. There's no opportunity to be saved from it, unless we're saved from it now before we die. And then he says, "This sin has shame for its companion. Look upon its dismal effects." Sin has shame for its companion, and especially in hell, right? There's no hiding it anymore. You're exposed there, right? The rich man cries up to Abraham, uh, to Lazarus and Abraham, is there any way? There's no, we can't cross the chasm, it's over with. And he's, ah, the horrible suffering. And there's a witness to this. There's some witness to their shame about it. You could have had Jesus, and you didn't take Jesus. You chose a sinful life, and now you have a shameful afterlife. Sin has shame for its companion in hell. Imagine what shame is like, how horrible it is to feel shamed. This is why people will do so many crazy things to avoid being embarrassed in public, right? It's probably why public speaking is the number one fear in America. It's the greater fear than death. I mean, when we talk about sin is worse than death, people would rather die than have to speak in public. (laughs) You know, there's that sense of what if I screw up, that sense of shame, he writes the hellish torment consists of two things this ongoing shame as our companion first the punishment of loss depart from me jesus says matthew 7:23 depart from me Then there's the punishment of sense. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. So there's a companion of shame, of the punishment of loss. Get away from me. That's a horrible thing, isn't it? Get away from me. I don't want to be next to you. I don't want to be near you. That's a horrible experience with someone, even when we've deserved that right? And then secondly, depart from me into everlasting fire. Everlasting fire is the way Jesus often speaks of hell, unending pain, physical and mental. This shame, this agony. What is a burning fever, he writes? What is a burning fever to the burning in hell? I mean, we cry, please, Lord, oh, pray for me, I want to be saved from my sickness. How many people ask us to pray for them they're sick, they got a fever? But they never say, Pray for me that I would be saved from hell. I want to be saved from my fever, go right back onto my sinning, right? Oh, what is a burning fever to the burning in hell? It is called the wrath of Almighty God. Revelation nineteen, fifteen. He says, a child cannot strike very hard, but a giant, if a giant strike, he kills with a blow. You know, he's given us this, uh, a child can't really hit you that hard. You know, sometimes when our kids try to kick us or, you know, they can hurt us. But I mean, if we're, if we're prepared for especially, especially, right, you know, hold their little head, right? Okay, go ahead, try to hit me. It can't even reach me, right? You know, and if they do, it's like, oh, ouch, throwing paper at me, you know? <laughs> you know and, but if it's a giant, if he hits, he hits with a blow that kills. You know, we don't. if we see a big guy, we kind of try to stay on his good side and keep our distance, right? We don't want him to hit us, you know? I saw a guy the other day. Actually, it was homeschooling orientation. He was very nice. No reason to think he was going to hit me. But he seemed to be a guy that did lift weights a lot. And I'm like, wow, just look at the size of those arms. I thought, I bet he can pack a punch, man. I I don't want to know what that would feel like. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so making that illustration, he compares it and says this. A child cannot strike very hard, but if a giant strike, he kills with a blow. But to have the almighty God lay the stroke will be intolerable. He is the emphasis, or excuse me, hell is the emphasis, and he italicizes that word, hell is the emphasis of misery. The body and soul which have sinned together shall suffer together, and those torments shall have no period put to them. What's a period, children, in a sentence? It's the end of a sentence. You know, we have this idea of a run-on sentence, but if there's no period, it's never done. It's never over. There's no period. There's no stop to suffering in hell. And think about this. What are we told? Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he would lift you up. But if you're under the mighty hand of God in hell, it's not for your benefit. It's for your punishment. And he doesn't ever let up. You can't say, mercy, mercy, okay, I give. There's no give. That was, in, that, was in, that was before you die. That was your opportunity to say, have mercy. If you don't take Christ's mercy now in hell, you can't ask him to take his hand off of punishment. It will just never stop. So again, deliver me from evil. Is the prayer, right? He's, he's trying to really impress us. How evil is sin? It's worse than death. It's worse than hell. Revelation 9, 6 he gives us. They shall seek death and shall not find it those in hell being punished by God shall seek death. I just want to relief. That's why people kill themselves now. The, The foolishness is that is not going to give them relief. That just sends them if they're not in Christ to a whole kind of new suffering that will never end. And there is no way out. There is no sleep. There's no soul sleep. There's no way to get out of this. They're wishing they could die and they can't die. Revelation fourteen eleven. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. The smoke of their torment of hell, this image is given. It goes on and on. It never goes out. But you can imagine in those smoke, if you would think of this image of perhaps coming out of a hole in the ground, so would their screams. Never stop. When someone is burned, they scream everlasting fire. Is there not then, and this is what he's really trying to drive home with us, is there not then great reason that we should make this prayer deliver us from evil? We could stop there, but I'd like to try to go a little further uh, to... uh, going to shoot for, shoot for a section tonight. I, mean, I might not get there, but use for instruction. We're going to start the, the section now. Think about those things, and now here's what to do about it. Use for instruction. That's how the Puritans will usually lead us, uh, as Dr. Kissler said in the video, and we're going to have, oh no, I think it was Dr. DeYoung, right? Uh, we're going to have the doctrine <laughs> and the explanation, and then we're going to have the application. So use. When they write use one, use two, what they're saying is here's how you need to apply yourself to this truth, okay, and apply this truth to you, so use one application one for instruction it is in reference to sin our savior has taught us to pray, deliver us from evil why is he telling us that? it occurs to me, we might mainly think of it in general please deliver me, don't ever let a tsunami get me you know, we were at the beach last week in the evening and I thought, boy, you know if a tsunami hit right now, we'd, we'd be gone. There's no getting away from it. You know, It's funny. They have those signs. Here's the way to go if there's a tsunami. But it's like, yeah, right. I mean, the only way I'll be going that way is dead, floating. I mean, there's no way I'm going to outrun a tsunami. Right? So I did pray, actually. Lord, please protect us from a tsunami. I mean, I don't think that was unreasonable to do that. But... We sign to pray, deliver us from evil things. But what he's saying is, it should make you pray, deliver us from evil. Recognize Jesus is teaching you to pray, deliver us from evil in reference to sin. That's the main thing he's saying. Deliver me from sinning. Lord, don't let me be tempted. Right? And what is a temptation but to encourage you to sin. And so, yeah, deliver me from sin is help me not sin if I'm tempted. Please deliver me from that. Let a tsunami take me to heaven, but Lord, don't let the sin take me to hell. The hypocrite's prayer is carnal, fleshly. He prays more to be cured of his deafness and lameness than of his unbelief. More that God would take away his pain than take away his sin. That's what he's trying to really drive home to us. We ought to be praying the other way. Hey, if I have to suffer pain, fine. But please don't let me sin. He next says, if sin be so great and evil, then admire the wonderful patience of God that bears with sinners. Isn't that powerful? And how is that possible that God bears with us and doesn't forsake us, never leaves us? How is that possible? Not just rhetorical. How is it that God bears with us? Jesus, yeah. That's the answer. That's the answer we're looking for. It's Jesus. The blood of Jesus. But consider this, how patient God is to bear with us, knowing how evil our sin is. And we have to confess we're sinners, First John, right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins, Right? Save us from all evil. He says next if sin be so great and evil, there is no little sin. Oh, you know, one day I hope to get to Jerry Bridges' book. I haven't read it. That's why I want to have a Wednesday night with it. It's an excuse to read it finally. Uh, what is it called? Um, acceptable Sins. He's kind of dealing with the fact that we Christians tend to have what we might think of as acceptable sins. There's no little sin, it's all evil. And the little ones just lead to the big ones, right? Um, I mentioned that movie, Nefarious, and he's a demon is talking to uh, James, the the, uh, psychiatrist in the prison. He says, well, if, if you possess this man, how did it happen? He says, oh, James, it doesn't happen quickly. Starts with a lot of little things, a lot of little yeses. To the point you get to where they invite you to possess them. You don't just do that overnight. Starts with a lot of little yeses. Interestingly, I don't know where they're coming from in terms of pedo or credo baptism, but it's interesting he said, especially if they're not baptized when they're young. I thought that was interesting they said that. Something like that. It was a little more creative in how they said it. But I thought it was, you know, we're not claiming them as Christ when they're young. And therefore not really raising them, but raising them to think they have the option, you know. Go sow your wild oats for a while, perhaps, first, you know? Oh, the devil loves that. Yeah, definitely make them think that's the way they should go first. So they have a great testimony and then can come back and repent and, you know, talk about all their sins and have a big baptism. And yeah, a lot of them don't come back. (laughs) There's no little sin. We can't justify any of them. We have to repent of all of them. And James says, if you've done one, you've done them all. Next he says, if sin be so great and evil, see whence all personal or national troubles come from. And this one I couldn't have but say, come on, preach it, brother. See where all personal or national troubles come from. This needs to go out on Fox News. I'm sorry, it really does. And if you want to say I'm a Democrat, you're wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, we are not interested in our sins. We're interested in what we think other people's sins are. And we don't want to recognize the real problem with our nation. It's us. It's the churches. If sin is so evil, this is the cause of all of our personal troubles. Our sins. Of course, other people's sins upon us. But sin and original sin, the effects that we're in. And the troubles of the nation. He writes, all our evils are from the evil of sin. And let's not pretend that our nation's troubles are from something else. We're so concerned about this and that and that out there, but we are not looking at ourselves. And if we did, we'd have to be on our knees repenting. And we wonder why the things that we want to blame on other people are about our nation, in fact, are God's punishment upon us. For who we are as we the people. Then he writes this, punishment follows wickedness as the thread, the needle. So what's the image, children? A needle, you know, with a little thread on it. Uh, You know, you're weaving that needle through the cloth to try to sew something, but what follows immediately through the same holes right behind it? The thread. Sin, going through whatever it is, immediately punishment is tied right to it. There's no getting away from that. He writes this, If sin be so great and evil, how little reason has anyone to be in love with it? I mean, I think some people do, like, love their sins, and some of them are bold enough to say so. Revel in it, right? But if it's so evil, how could anyone be in love with sin? Sometimes I think the way we pretend we're, You know, we try to lie to ourselves, but we make it our identity. And it's the whole focus of our whole life. Support groups, what church is supposed to be for me instead of what I'm supposed to be for the church. My whole life revolves around that sin. Oh, I went into it again. Yeah, because you're making that your identity, you actually still love it. We have to hate it. And one thing we always try to help people understand in ourselves is when you sin, you chose to do it. And why did you choose it? Because you love it. That's why. You love it. You may hate the effects, but you don't hate the sin. Because if you did, you wouldn't do it. We don't do what we hate. We do what we love. That's true for all of us. I'm not trying to excuse myself from that. Number six. If sin be so great and evil, what shall we say of them who make light of sin? As if there were no danger in it. As if God were not in earnest when he threatens sin, or as if ministers were about a needless work when they preach against it. Remember, our confession says it's equally important to preach repentance as much as it is to preach faith. They said that for a reason it's easier to preach faith. (laughs) We have to preach repentance too, and that relates to sin. People don't want to hear about sin, they don't want to believe they're sinners. I'm good. I'm basically good. God loves me. God just wants me to be happy. God likes me for who I am, right? You you don't see billboards out very often that say, Sinner, repent. You see, God loves you. He has a plan for your life. Giving sinners a false sense of hope and confidence. Oh, well, then what do I have to worry about changing? but we shouldn't act as if it's no big deal. Remember what I read to you last time from this book, Our Ancient Foe, the quote of Screwtape, right? Uh, Or I might have used that in one of the sermons, I forget, but you know, Screwtape says to his apprentice, hey, as long as they're not really serious about it, that's great. A half-hearted religion is the best for us. We don't want any passionate Puritans, you know. Sin isn't that big a thing. Come on, wink at it, wink, wink, you know, little white lies, you know. Uh, sin is a great evil always, never to be made light of. And so he quotes Proverbs uh, 14, verse 9. Fools make a mock at sin. That might be a good one for us to memorize when people will mock and imply things. You know, fools make a mock at sin. And sin is the transgression of God's law, the Bible says. Fools make a mock at God's law as if it doesn't matter if we keep it. Next he says, if sin be so great and evil, I infer that there is no good to be got by it. Of this thorn we cannot gather grapes. There's no good to be got. That doesn't mean there's not pleasure. That doesn't mean you don't enjoy the sin. You wouldn't do it otherwise. But the end of it is bleeding, not wine. Right? The end of it is horrible effects in your conscience. In your heart, often in your body, and in the lives of others. Sometimes in the bodies of others. It never leads to any good. Which we appreciated uh, um, Jonathan Edwards' study last night with a men's study on love. And uh, the spirit of an unjust anger is against the spirit of love. One of the things he says, you've got to catch yourself with unjust anger. What good is this going to lead to? It's not going to lead to any good for you or anyone else. As a motivation, stop. And he says, sin doesn't lead to anything good. Just go to the first sin, the devil. Oh, you'll know evil and good like God does. Yes, not the same way. You'll notice that someone guilty of evil and having to have the punishment for it. Nothing good came of it. Only horrible things came of it. Malachi 3.14 It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it? That whole mocking Uh, And then Romans 6.21, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Look at that word ashamed again. What fruit do you have it? Any good fruit? Not fruit of the spirit. Anything good and pleasing fruit is rotten fruit, right? It just ends up being rotten. What do we do with rotten food? We throw it out. It is not able to be consumed. It can't nourish. It only can make you sick. You know, I, I don't like to waste money. I don't like to waste food. So I'm almost motivated. Well, I'll pick the lettuce, the bad lettuce out. You know, the, 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 you got to really be careful. Just throw it out. You know, you, you can't risk eating some bad stuff contaminated with it, right? It It's not going to have any good effect, only bad effects. Then he says, if sin be so great an evil, see the folly of those who venture upon it because of the pleasure that they have in it. Again, there is pleasure in it. Let's be straight about it you got to watch out for the long term. you got to think past the immediate pleasure. But think how foolish it is because you do it for the pleasure of it because that pleasure is fleeting. But the pain will stay. No good in the end comes from this. And those who are like, you can think of certain sins, they want more and more and more of it. Why? Because the buzz wears off. And it takes a lot, lot more to get anything out of it. And eventually you don't get anything out of it. But you can't stop and it just ruins your life. As for the pleasure of sin, it is but seeming. It is but a pleasant fancy, a golden dream. And besides, it is a mixed pleasure. It has bitterness intermingled with it. The pleasure men talk of in sin is their disease. The thing that they talk about it like it's their pleasure, that's their disease. They're so sick, they don't even know they're sick. They don't even recognize that the pleasure they think they enjoy is killing them. Proverbs 23:31: "Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, as the last, at the last it biteth like a serpent." Now we know from other scriptures, this is not saying we can never consume alcohol. What it is saying is you can't get drunk, and you've got to watch out. you've got to watch out, Because in the end, it's going to bite you like a snake. The pleasure of sin is soon gone, but the sting remains, he says. "Next, if sin be so great and evil, what wisdom is it to depart from it? It's so smart not to sin. But people treat us to make you feel like you're stupid if you don't want to sin, right? Young people, you're going to face that pressure all the time. What are you so stupid? What are you so what are you you look dumb. Everyone else is doing it. Don't you want to be cool? Right? Where they say it, you know, and I mean, that temptation, that kind of peer pressure is in Christian context with young people just as much as other places. We try to control and minimize it, but it's always there. You want to be cool, don't you? Everyone's doing it, it'll make you feel good. But in the end, it stings. It is so wise to depart, therefore. To depart from evil is understanding, Job says. To depart from sin is to do wisely. You have to tell yourselves the truth against the lie of Satan. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He is lying when he tells you you're going to know good and evil. The way God knows it. He's lying when he tells you it's going to feel good and there'll be no effects. I mean, that's what's interesting, you know, this whole get children to think they're a man or a woman when they're not and have their body parts cut off and as some of them have said, it's ruined my life and they lied you cannot reverse this but they do lie to you apparently and give you the sense that you can reverse back you can't reverse back that's what sin's like sin has many fair pleas and tells how it will gratify all the senses with pleasure but says a gracious soul Christ's love is sweeter Peace of conscience is sweeter. What are the pleasures of sin to the pleasures of paradise? I mean, in the end, if you don't give up the pleasures of sin, you'll be in hell forever. Why would I choose that when I can turn away from sin unto God in Christ, and I know that I'm going to enjoy the pleasures of God in his presence forevermore? Psalm 16. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, about the resurrection in Christ. Literally, it's about the resurrection in Christ. Acts chapter 2. But also in this life, why would I give up peace of conscience? See, when you have a troubled conscience for your sin, what do you do? More sin. You just make it worse. And Then what do you have? A more troubled conscience. The accuser, he turns, he is the, he's the deceiver. He is the liar. And then when he gets you to sin, guess what then? Now he's your accuser. That's a, an insight this book has really developed to our ancient foe. He, and he turns on the accuser. I gotcha. Now I'm going to accuse you. I'm going to make you feel really guilty. Try to get you to kill yourself. You can't go to Christ. Why would you give up that piece of conscience for a moment's pleasure? See, Because it stays with you. That's why one of the Psalms says, Lord, don't remember my, the sins of my youth. Well, apparently he's saying that because he can't get it off his mind. They stay with us, right? They trouble us. We keep turning to Christ in the cross and his blood to know we're forgiven. But they always trouble our conscience. If sin be so great and evil, how justifiable and commendable are all those means which are used to keep men from sin. How justifiable are a minister's admonitions and reproofs. Rebuke them sharply. Titus one thirteen. I'm thankful this is a church that supports and has always known that. But as you know, that's something a lot of people don't really want. It needs to be rebuke. Jesus says, those who I rebuke, I love, repent. God's minister comes with a cutting reproof, but it is to keep from sin and to save the soul. All a minister's reproofs are but to keep you from sin and hinder from self-murder. All is in love. Again, Jesus says, Them whom I rebuke, I love. And if you read, that's at the end of the letters to the seven churches of Asia, and they are full of rebuke. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians 5.11 He says, It is the passion of most to be angry with those who would reclaim them from sin. Right? You try to work with people who don't want to give up their sins, you become the enemy. They hate you for it. Unless the Lord does a work and then they say what the psalm says, let, a, let someone rebuke me, it'll be a friend to me. But otherwise, they hate it. God never made ministers to be false glasses, to make bad faces look fair. Such make themselves guilty of other men's sins. Uh, he's alluding, I think, to Ezekiel. God says, if you don't warn the people about their sins, their blood of their guilt will be on your hands. But if you warn them about their sins, their blood guilt is still on them, but you can wash your hands of them because you warned them. But he's saying, God didn't make preachers to make you feel happy in your sin and to dress up your sin and put makeup on it like a dead person about to be buried. And everybody knows that's not what they really look like, right? God didn't hire ministers, call ministers, it isn't that they're not to encourage and support the sheep, but a lot of uh, Jeremiah's, you know, the false preachers, the false prophets, they peace peace when there is no peace because they're sinning against God. And if you help people feel good about their sins and you don't want to be a faithful prophet, uh, then you're guilty of their sins because you endorsed them and encouraged the minute, and so now you're guilty of them yourselves. He says, if sin be so great an evil, the evil of evils see what a bad choice they make who choose sin to avoid affliction. And that's where I wanted to get to tonight. I hope you can see why bringing around all the good things of affliction. But we often do choose sin to avoid affliction, to deaden the pain in one way or the other. But how foolish that is, because it's just further self-affliction in the end. Let me read that again. God never made. oh excuse me, Uh, if sin be so great an evil, the evil of evils, see what a bad choice they make who choose sin to avoid evil. He who commits sin to avoid suffering is like one that runs into a lion's den to avoid the stinging of a gnat. Think about that. Can you see that image, children? Oh, there's a gnat. Oh, that stinking gnat. That's annoying, no doubt about it, right? But why would you run into a den of a lion to try to get away from the gnat? The gnat can get in there too, first of all, right? But now you're in a lion's den? Would have been smarter to just stay outside with the gnat. Why would you try to get away from affliction with sin? Rather, he's saying... Okay, we've compared all these things again and come back to affliction. Why would you want to get out of affliction by way of evil? You should be praying, God, help me not to go into evil. Deliver me from evil. I'm going to go ahead and... uh, well, let me see here. Uh, Actually, if you don't mind, let me close. There's just about a paragraph left, and then we're going to start a whole new section. I think that'll be easier for starting up next time. Next, he says, I kind of want to end there. Maybe I still will revisit that for closing in prayer, because I think it's a nice bookend. But he has a few more things to say. If sin be so great and evil, now again, these are uses. How do we apply what we've learned? If sin be so great and evil, as he's proven to us, It should be a Christian's great care in this life to keep from it. Deliver us from evil. Some make it all their care to keep out of trouble. They had rather keep their skin whole than their conscience pure. But our care should be chiefly to keep from sin. I think this is still related to concern about affliction. Psalm nineteen thirteen. keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. goes on to say, let them have no dominion over me. And then as we'll sing, hopefully as, as uh, we looked at our study last night and what some of Elder Renner's favorite verses, the next verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And pray that. We need God's help to have this perspective and to apply it so and pray it so. He says this, Is sin so great and evil? It should make us long for heaven, where we shall be perfectly freed from sin. Not only from its outward acts, but from the in-being of sin. In heaven we shall not need to pray this prayer, deliver us from evil, In heaven, we shall have no temptation to sin. The old serpent is cast out of paradise, and his fiery darts shall never come near to touch us. You can see why I wanted to get to that close. Beloved, that's our encouragement. We're praying God protects us from the horrible things of sin in this world, but we remember we've already been saved and delivered from it ultimately. And in paradise and in heaven, we won't sin. There will not be any temptation. We will not need to pray deliver us from evil because we won't be able to sin anymore. I can't remember the Latin phrases well enough to repeat them, but this relates to the fourfold state of man. We studied Thomas Boston's book on it a while ago. It's reflecting Augustine, I think. Man in the garden was not a sinner, but he was capable of sinning. After the fall, man is a sinner and he can only sin. In a state of grace, man is a sinner, but he can choose not to sin and grow in grace. And in the state of glory, man is righteous, and he can't even possibly sin. Which is an exalted state from the garden in Christ, right? I'd like to close reading this... uh, this note from you, it's from the book, it's from the chapter called Malevolent Methodology. I've shared it with you recently, Ronald Cole, Ephesians four twenty-six to 27, that says, be angry but do not sin, do not give the devil a foothold, that was a sermon recently, with your anger. Uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? Um, uh, so at the end of his chapter, the malevolent methodology of Satan I think he writes something really wonderful that I think re- relates well with Watson's close there, and then we'll close singing Psalm 19 and, and pray. Cole, Ronald Cole writes this: "We are not to think in terms of time chronology, but in terms of redemptive history. Christ has come. Check. He has died in atoning death. Check. He was buried but was raised from the dead. Check. He has ascended into glory and now is at the Father's right hand where he makes intercession on behalf of the redeemed whenever Satan brings his accusations against them. Finally and thankfully, check. With these truths ringing in our ears, we must remember that the only remaining event in the story of redemption is Christ's return and Satan's final defeat. So beloved, be encouraged and war against sin, having victory in Christ already. And one day you'll no longer be battling, you'll be the church triumphant. Until that day, Let us pray the Lord's Prayer. If you don't mind, uh, I'd like to close with the Lord's Prayer. But first, let's uh, turn to Psalm 19, the second part. We sang the first part to open up today, uh, which was praising the Lord as creation praises the Lord, general revelation. Then the next part of Psalm 19 is about special revelation, how it reveals a saving knowledge of God. And it includes that call of repentance and asking God to purify our thinking and our speaking. and it includes that prayer don't let sin have dominion over me so it expresses the heart of the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer Psalm 19 7 to 14 page 35 you can remain seated
1: da, 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 da. God's law is perfect and converts the soul in that lies God's testimony is most sure and makes the simple wise, the statutes of the And do rejoice the heart The Lord's command Is pure and doth Light to the eyes impart Unspotted is the of God and doth endure forever the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together they more. fine gold to be desired are, than honey, honey from the comb that drop its sweeter far, more servant warn how he his life should frame a great reward provided is for them that keep the same who can His errors understand, O cleanse thou me within. From secret faults thy servant keep, from all presumptuous sin do not suffer them to have dominion over me, then righteous and innocent I from much sin shall be. The words which from my mouth proceed, the thoughts sent from my heart. Accept, O Lord, for Thou my strength and my Redeemer art let's pray.
0: Lord Jesus, help us to internalize and deeply appreciate these truths that sin is so evil. Our sinning is so wicked and evil. It brings no good and only pain. And, O Lord, even if you have saved us from uh, sin's effects and eternal death, yet we bring a deathly hue upon us in this life and on our our ways and family, and we pray, deliver us from evil. Lord, we acknowledge and recognize it would be better to have affliction and never be delivered than not to be delivered from evil in this life and in the life to come. We recognize sin is worse than... Then hell and sin is worse than death. O Lord, we pray indeed, deliver us from evil. Keep back thy servants from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. Then shall we be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray as you taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for being here, beloved. You are dismissed. Have a lovely week.